Our first scripture reading is in the New Testament. It is in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's on page 962 in your blue Bibles, if you're using that blue Bible there. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, as you know, is that great discussion Paul has on the importance and significance of Jesus rising from the dead, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair. And then he ends by talking about that's our hope that he will come back to raise us in the same way. And so as he's coming to conclude this chapter, he comes down to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts, a, puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in the Old Testament. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of, the, of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And now we turn to Ecclesiastes 3. As we continue our brand new series, we started last week in Ecclesiastes from abated, from abated to abiding. We dealt with the first two chapters last week. We're going to read and work our way all the way through chapter 3. Right now I'm just going to read the first eight verses. If the birds show up during this sermon, don't be surprised. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to loose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. So what I've read to you from Ecclesiastes 3 and from 1 Corinthians 15 is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, coming to find hope in the hopelessness of a world that strives to live under the sun can be a hard task. As we work on Ecclesiastes, fill us. Fill us with a durableness and faith, hope and love and work the health-giving Spirit-inspired message of Ecclesiastes into our lives, for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said, we began this last week, and I would highly encourage you, it's online, you can go to heritagepca.org, click on the media button, and you can go down and you can see where I started this last week, and you really need to listen to last week's sermon, the best sermon Ecclesiastes wanted to ever. Well, maybe not that good. 
And the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide for those of you who are visiting and... Uh, yeah. So same old, same old. Or the more things change, the more they remain the same. Or what goes up must come down. Spinning wheel got to go round. Blood, sweat, and tears showed up to Heritage Presbyterian Church. Been singing that song all week long. You know, we use all kinds of phrases to sum up what we find in Ecclesiastes. Especially the rhythms that we see here in the first in chapter three, but other places as well. I want you to remember that Solomon is pushing his son, as he is writing this, he's pushing his son to consider what it means to look for meaning and value under the sun. So that, hopefully, he can get his son and us to see things in God's better than way. And so in these verses, he begins by laying out the rhythms. And that's verses 1 through 8. The rhythms in verses 1 through 8. So I want you to notice there's a question to ask as you read this passage. As you read verses 1 through 8, ask the question is just right there waiting for you to ask. Is this the cure? Or is this the disease? I mean, if someone were hearing verses 1 through 8, who has their nose to the grindstone and is slaving under the sun, they may likely hear this as vanity of vanities and striving after the wind. This rhythmic repetition of life might actually well weigh one down oppressively and overpoweringly. And yet, if verses 1 through 8 is flowing out of the last few verses of chapter 2, look again at chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy and so forth. If verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 is flowing out of the end of chapter 2, then that rhythm in verses 1 through 8 might well be heard as a rhythm from within the framework of the goodness of God in all things. For truly, dear friends, there is a good rhythmic structure that God has planted into the constitution of the universe. And he has planted into the constitution of you and me as human beings made in his image. I mean, just think about routines. Think about your daily life. What do you do every day? Well, you rise up early, I'm sure, and you read your Bibles, and you run, and you shower, and then you breakfast, and then you scoop up the kids and shove them all into the van, and you race off to school, and you drop them off at school, and then you claw your way to work, and you work your tail off all day, and there's some more rhythms there and routines. And then you fight your way all the way back through rush hour traffic to get home, especially if you work over at Paycom and that whole intersection. That's a, that's, a, that's a hand-to-hand combat there. Then you get home and you eat, and then you scramble to one of the kids' games, and then you get back home and you barely decompress and then just off to bed. That's a cycle. That's a routine. There are lots of those routines. There are weekly cycles that we all go through. Think of our own lives. We have, especially as Christians, we have some divinely mandated weekly routines. The Lord's Day starts the whole week. 
and puts it all on track for us. And then if you're in a choir or if you're in something like that, you come on other days of the week, it sets up these routines, weekly cycles. Then there are these monthly sequences that we have. Like our elder deacon meeting happens every Monday. The Needlework Guild happens every first Saturday of every month. Women's ministry, they meet once a month as well. There's these monthly sequences. And then there are the annual successions. So for us, for example, we have our annual trip, mission trip to Carnegie. And then in July, we'll have our annual mega sports camp vacation Bible school and so forth. We have all these annual routines. And then personally, we have routines in the sense that we have, you know, annual vacations. Some of you are better at planning those than some of us, but we won't get into that, right? But you have those annual vacation routines. But my friends, this rhythm, this rhythm is either repugnant or it is rewarding, all based upon your reference point. To put it very simply, our orientation determines how we see the rhythmic structure that God has encoded in creation and into us in our own lives. Which brings the preacher then to develop verses 1 through 8, starting in verses 9 through 15, on using one specific frame of reference, and it's the reference of recognitions, recognition. So let me read, starting at verse 9. So follow along. I hope you have your Bible open here. Follow along. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen, there's the observation language, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived, there's that observation again, that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good, and as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all this toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So starting with verse 9, we have the question. We have that question. What gain is the worker from his toil? And that question is arising from the context of to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven. The birds showed up as well. It's in that context he asks the question. And it's the question that has actually been lurking since chapter 1, and it will continue to show up all the way through Ecclesiastes. He asks the question, what gain has the worker from his toil? And he brings us the answer, and the answer is in verses 10 through 15. First off, I've already emphasized it to you, but you need to remember this. I want you to remember that there is all of this observation language. Three times. I have seen, I have perceived, I perceived. One of the things you need to remember when you're reading Ecclesiastes is that most of Ecclesiastes is not directive. It is not telling you what you must do. It is rather descriptive, telling you, recounting the things that... I have observed, and then from that drawing lessons. So most of this is observation, 
descriptive, not prescriptive, if you want to put it that way. But secondly, notice the preacher's answer. The preacher's answer, after much reconnoitering and reflecting, he comes to recognize that we all have a vocation. We have a vocation. We have a God-given business that we're to be busy with. Verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That's already begun to answer the question of verse 9. What gain is the worker for his toil? Oh, I have a God-given vocation. There's the beginning answer to the question. But I want you to notice further. What is this vocation? It doesn't come out and just tell us what our vocation is completely. But it does lay out for us, Solomon lays out for us, two aspects of this vocation. There's the unknown aspect, and there is that which is clearly known. So let's start with the unknown. It's verse 11, and then verse 14 and 15. Notice what Solomon says in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its times. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, we keep forgetting that next statement. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I think verse 11 resonates beautifully with something that St. Augustine said in his Confessions in book one, paragraph one. And I think you have this in your sermon notes. If you don't, I should have put it in there. But he says at the very beginning of his Confessions, in a prayer, you awake us for yourself. Right? You, you awake us to delight in your praise for you have made us for yourself and so our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You awake us for your praise. You've made us for yourself. You've put eternity into the heart of man. And yet our hearts are restless because we can't figure it all out. Our hearts are restless. We live all of our days with this restlessness until we find our rest in you. I think what Solomon says in verse 11 clearly resonates with Augustine's statement. And so then, verse 11 and verse 14 through 15, we're given just enough, by God's design, we're given just enough information about our vocation to recognize that some of life's, the quality of life's rhythms, what they are, but we're not given the big divine stratagem. It escapes us. Did you notice that in the verse 11? So that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's intentional, but it's not just intentional. It actually makes good sense. We're creatures. We cannot step back far enough. You know how you do that when you want to see the big picture? You step back, right? You can't step back far enough to get a God's eye view of it all. Because you and I, we are limited, created beings. There's so much unknown because we can't see enough. If we could, we would be God. Does that make sense? And that's what he's pointing out here. That's why, yeah, we're, we're, we have eternity in our hearts. We're made for, for God. And so we're restless until we find our rest in him. We can't figure it all out because we're not big enough. We're not divine. We're finite. We kind of talked about this in Sunday school today. And so, my friends, the, the unknown 
quantity is intended to bring us to the fear of God. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. And verse 15 is just emphasizing the same thought. And then he says, God has done it so that. Purpose statement. Purpose statement. So that people fear before him. The unknown is intentional, partly because we're created beings, and partly because we need to walk in the fear of God. That sounds oddly familiar. That's where this book is actually going to end in the last two verses of the last chapter. Let me put it to you in a different way. My friends, God is always, always the maker and sustainer. And you and I, we are always the made and the sustained. Right there, we already have a problem on our worst days. Our best days, we're okay with that. But on our worst days, we don't like that. I want to make myself. I want to be self-sustaining. And then I want to be your savior and sustain you. I don't like being the made and sustained. That's where our problem comes in, where we're restless all the time. But God is always the maker and sustainer. And you and I, we are always the made and sustained. And that brings us then to recognize who God is and to fear God, to reverence him, to adore him. That's who you are, God. That's our vocation. Part of it arising from the unknown aspect. Knowing that we were made for God, and so yes, we are restless until our hearts find rest in Him. That we're not God, we can't figure it all out. We are the made and the sustained. And so we live always in that feeling of that tentativeness, I guess you could put it that way. But then there are things that we can know about the vocation, our vocation, with some certainty. And it's verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 and 13, and all of the brevity and breathless banality of life. We can be those who settle down. Look at verse 12 and 13. I perceived that there is nothing better. We're back to the better language. There's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. We just read that passage in Galatians 6 before the confession of sin about doing good, especially to those of the household of faith. Huh? To do good as long as they live also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all this toil. This is God's gift to man. There's nothing better. This is God's gift to man. Living in that recognition, our vocation of recognizing there's nothing better than this. That this is God's gift. C.S. Lewis one time wrote a, a, a an article that ended up being put into a book. The book is The Weight of Glory. It's a book I would highly recommend everyone read. But in that book where this article is put, he wrote at the beginning of World War II, and so the, the, the chapter is titled Learning in Wartime. Learning in wartime. He wrote at the beginning of World War II when everybody was like, we're all out for the, for the cause of safety and the cause of national defense and all that. What use is education in a time like this? And so he's answering that question. 
And it's a seriously sage piece that echoes the sensibleness of Ecclesiastes learning in wartime. At one point he observes this, and I think this quotation is in your sermon notes. Quote, never in peace or war commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. It is only our daily bread that we are encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace be received. End of quotation. I think that's very helpful. This is not saying we shouldn't save up and we shouldn't work with thinking about the future. It's just putting the future too firmly in our plans. Coming to have the satisfied recognition of God's providence means that we can embrace our vocation inside the providential rhythms. There's a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. Here in the satisfied recognition of God's providential rhythms, we realize we have a vocation. And that vocation has an unknown aspect. And in that unknown, we walk in the fear of God. But it also has a known aspect. And so we live with the nothing better than perspective. The this is the gift of God thankfulness. As a guy who struggles with contentment. This is autobiographical, okay? I made some poor career decisions, or at least they were poor, I thought, and still think. But I thought they were great at the time. Because of discontent. Because I didn't see that this is from the, God, the hand of God. This is good. I have a job to do. Praise God, I got a job. No, no, I got to be better than that. I deserve, I'm entitled to more. There's where the discontentment came in. But living in this satisfied recognition, this known aspect of the nothing better than, the this is the gift of God, thankfulness. And it's inside this satisfied recognition we, we're careful about putting the future, future too firmly in our plans. In James' words, and you're going to hear a lot about James, I'm going to pick up James, we're going to work through it in probably July and August. But in James chapter 4, verse 15, James is talking to Christian businessmen and he says, you are sinning because you are planning too tightly for the future. What you should be saying is, and I want you to listen to these words, because we get this wrong all the time. What you should be saying is, if the Lord wills, we will live. And go do this or that. We forget that part. And James is telling us, you and I are not entitled to tomorrow. Do you get that? We have no guarantee we're going to make it to tomorrow. Today is the gift of God. Live in it with thankfulness and joy. If the Lord wills, we will live. And then go do this or that. That's what Solomon is pounding out here in Ecclesiastes. So my friends, take the moment you're in. Take the kids that you've got while they're kids. Take that spouse 
while you have her or him. Take the now while you have it. And by the grace and the goodness of God, enjoy it. Enjoy her, enjoy him, enjoy them. I can tell you as a parent, you will never reclaim any of those days with your kids. They all grow up. I don't know what it is. It's the fertilizer or something. I don't know. But you can never reclaim that time. And as kids, enjoy those parents because you can never reclaim that time. There's no guarantee they'll be there when you're 60 or they're 60. They may never make it. Who knows? Enjoy what God has given you now with these people right here sitting in the pew with you. That's kind of, as I said, that's Solomon's point. Notice how he ties all of chapter 3 together with this theme. Look at verse 1, verse 11, verse 17. We haven't got to verse 17 yet, but I'm going to read it anyway. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time, verse 17, the last part. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. That's where he's going with all of that. That recognition. And so the rhythm of verses 1 through 8 is pondered from one focused angle, recognizing that it is the gift of God. A satisfied recognition. And so in the middle of the riddle, the preacher inserts the rhyme that fills the rhythm with some meaning and value. I thought that was a cool statement. And so then the preacher challenges us on redressing injustice. It's interesting that chapter 3 ends with verses 16 through 22. Let me read it. As we continue on here. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they, are them, that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. I, all go to one place, all, from the, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The preacher goes here in these verses, especially verse 16, but it's still in his mind all the way through. He goes where many in our day and age go to search for meaning and value. He goes into the legislative halls. He goes into the executive office. He goes into the courts of justice under the sun. And what he should, should have found was justice and righteousness. But instead, and think about it, he's the king. So there's probably three fingers pointing back at him as he's talking this way, interesting enough. What does he find where there should have been justice and should have been righteousness? He finds wickedness. It's all bleak and blurry. And then into this brusque description of the brokenness and judicial madness, verse 16, notice that Solomon immediately has to stop and he has to counterbalance the dark statement of verse 16 with a statement of assurance in verse 17. Again, here he goes. I said in my heart, God will judge 
the righteous and the wicked. This is where he will end Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is where he's going to end Ecclesiastes. He has to stop a moment and get a breath of fresh air. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Notice that his assurance statement of verse 17 is not something he can quantifiably or empirically validate. Nevertheless, his confession of faith is very much a Hebrews 11 verse 1 kind of interjection. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. After giving us that assurance, that brief relief of hope in verse 17... Solomon comes back to his subject of verses 18 through 21. And I want you to notice how he does this. And maybe he didn't mean it this way, but this is the way it hits me. Verse 18, God does this because he is testing humans that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. I know where he's going to go with this, but part of what it seems to me goes along with what we said last week. For all of our medical advancements and technological advancements and sociological advancements, etc., 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 we're not very advanced. We're highly advanced in our total depravity. You remember me saying that? Can I get that? Okay, I got a witness there. All right. So I said that last week. And I think Solomon is driving a little bit in that direction to remind us that sometimes there's injustice in the court system. There's sometimes there's injustice in the executive office and the legislative, whom we usually put in, right, in some way, to remind us we're still all just a bunch of beasts in the way that we act. Might makes right rules 99.6% of the world. And I think, that's, I think that's a valid aspect that he's bringing out there. But then he goes on to point out to us in the rest of that section there, starting in verse 19 and following, that just like the beasts, we will all die, even those with superpowers. Like Putin. Just ask him. He's got him. Just trust me. He thinks he does. Come on, lighten up, people. All of us will die. Death is the great leveler. Joe Stalin may have murdered millions by his policy, but he's a dead man. He's not limitless. He was limited and always was. And so are we. And so, kind of in the way I put it last week, you know, if we are the crushed or we are the crushers, we've got to remember that there will be shoved into our path the impenetrable stainless steel wall of death, which is the great leveler that levels us all. That's what Solomon is driving at and pointing out here. Remember, he is writing this with one foot up on the bank on top of the freshly dug soil and the other one hovering over the grave. And he's looking back at life and he's telling Rehoboam, This is what I've seen. And so Solomon is contrasting here limitations to our illusions of limitlessness. If you're a human, you feel limitless in some way. I remember being 18 and joining the military. We went out and played G.I. Joe. We had to get all this combat training. Man, we we had John Wayne 
impressed. I mean, we thought we were something special. None of those guys were ever going to take us out because we're the ones going to take them on, right? We felt limitless. Most people feel limitless in some way, feel like superheroes in some way. And Solomon is pulling that illusion down. We're not limitless. We're very limited. And if you don't believe that, just look, go to the cemetery. If nothing else, just go to the cemetery. So what do we do when we're surrounded by such systemic evil? Back up in verse 16, what do we do? He tells you in verse 22, So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for for that is his lot. In the midst of the systemic evil, there's not much most of us can do. I mean, in fact, today, there may be a few things you could do by voting and whatever, but most of our world, there ain't nothing you can do. So what do you do? He says, well, there's nothing better then than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Solomon is driving, pointing out to us, be content in faith, be content with what is our responsibility. There's so much that's not our responsibility, and there's things that are. And so there's chapter 3. So let's reflect a moment. As we walk away today, where does this leave us? Lots of things I could say, but I will tell you two things very briefly. Uh, J. Todd Billings is a professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary. He's published a ton of books, and he likes my book reviews so much that he loves to to email me and say, Mike, I just wrote a new book. Would you take it? Would you read it and review it? And I say, sure, Todd, be glad to. And so he asks me all the time. It's, It's a great, I love it. But he wrote this one called Rejoicing Lament. In about 2015, he has a special form of cancer. He was about 35 years old when he found out he had the cancer. It's a life-threatening cancer. It will inevitably take him at some point. He's right now in about the middle of his 40s. But he was coming to terms with his life-destroying cancer and his Calvinist theology. And towards the end of one of the chapters... He recounts how he heard this sermon in seminary. And so he's going to favorably quote this sermon. And it was a sermon from one of the seminary professors. We'll just call him the seminary preacher. It's about how our lives are hidden with Christ and what that means. And I think Todd Billings gets it. He pulls together what Solomon is pushing at here in chapter 3. And so the seminary preacher said, quote, he admonished his listeners that when their lives take turns that appear to be dead ends, they should remember that they are hidden with Christ in God. While this may sound sober, there is good news here in the promise that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So that seminary preacher went on to say, it's not your job to fashion your own success as if you were God. It's not your job to write the last chapter of your life. It's not your job to tie up the loose ends. It's not your job to make sense of everything. Your life is hid with Christ and God. Let it be your highest act of faith and faithfulness to leave it there. 
Leave the ambiguity of discipleship at the cross. What does that mean, ambiguity of discipleship? I mean, just think about your own Christian walk. Did you ever dream you'd be where you're at now? Probably not, right? The ambiguity of discipleship. Leave the ambiguity of discipleship at the cross. And remember, the cross is empty because Christ is risen. Leave the ambiguity of discipleship at the cross. Let God gather up the fragments. Let God finish the story. End of quotation. That sermon left Todd Billings in tears. In tears of hopefulness. Yeah, leave the ambiguity of the discipleship at the cross. Let God gather up the fragments. Let God finish the story. My friends, that's partly what we're being brought to in Ecclesiastes 3. But let me go a little bit further. Dear brothers and sisters, you have something that Solomon could only vaguely sense and perceive and that he longed for. You have the answer to the inanity and the banality of life under the sun. And the answer was actually written out and printed about 64 A.D., It's the last two verses that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 as he was talking about the resurrection of Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and on the third day he was raised uh, according to the scripture. And so we have hope no matter the vanity and the banality and the breathless brevity of life. And so Paul ends by saying, thanks be to God who gives us the victory, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. You have the very answer that Solomon longed for and was looking for. So, dear friends, your life is hidden with Christ and God in this turn, turn, turn rhythm with the unknown and the known aspects of the vocation that God has given us. Let it be our highest act of faith and faithfulness to leave life there. Hidden with Christ and God. Leave the ambiguity of discipleship at the cross and the empty tomb. Let God gather up the fragments. Let God finish the story. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of all of the brevity and the vanity and the vacuousness, There is this rhythm. Thank you for putting this rhythm into creation, into our own lives. Thank you for the vocation you have given us, a God-given vocation. Thank you for reminding us that we are very limited, that we're not gods or demigods. And so, Lord, we walk forward in this ambiguous discipleship, as it were. We walk forward, fearing you, trusting you, knowing that you are always the maker and the sustainer, and we are always the made and the sustained. 
We also thank you for the known aspect. We have a life. We have a vocation. We have a job you've given us. And you've given it to us now in this moment. Forgive us for the times that we have put the future too firmly into our plans. And help us to reclaim James's statement, if the Lord wills, we will live. And then go do this or that. Most of all, Lord, we are grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was raised for our justification, and that's in him we, you have given us the victory. And so may we be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.